The book of the prophet Obadiah. This is the shortest book in the whole Old Testament. It's a mere 21 verses. And at first glance, it does not look very promising. It's a series of divine judgment poems against the ancient people of Edom, which was a nation that neighbored Israel on the other side of the Dead Sea. However, there is way, way more going on here. So first, here's the backstory. The people of Edom were unique because they had a shared ancestry with the Israelites. They both belonged to the family of Abraham, who, with Sarah, had their son Isaac, who, with his wife Rebekah, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, the book of Genesis told us the story of these two brothers, and to say the very least, they had a tense relationship. They each later received the names Israel and Edom, which eventually became the name of the families that descended from them. And these families replayed the same difficult relationship of their ancestors. Israel and Edom had enormous tensions throughout the centuries, but they still shared that family bond. And it's that bond that was betrayed and shattered in the tragic events of Jerusalem's fall to Babylon. So when Israel was invaded and conquered by Babylon, the people of Edom took advantage by plundering other Israelite cities and then capturing and even killing Israelite refugees. Now, in other prophetic books, God held Israel's neighbors accountable for this kind of violence. And so here, Obadiah does the same for Edom. The short book has two halves. The first part is a series of accusations against the leaders of Edom, specifically for their pride and self-exaltation. Literally, as they lived up high in the desert rocks, but also metaphorically, they truly believed they were superior to the Israelites. And it's that pride that led the Edomites to not just stand idly by when Babylon came to destroy Jerusalem, but actually to participate in the destruction. And so God says through Obadiah that Edom will be brought down from their height and destroyed. As they have done to Israel, so it will be done to them. Now, right when you think you're going to hear more about how Edom will meet its doom, the topic suddenly shifts in verse 15. We hear this, the day of the Lord is near against all nations. Now, why do we all of a sudden shift from Edom now to all nations? This first is a hinge piece, and it links the first half of the book to the second half, where Obadiah announces the day of the Lord, but not only for Edom. He widens his focus to include all nations. And Obadiah says that all prideful nations that act like Edom will face God's justice in the same way. They'll fall from their prideful heights and come to ruin. Now, the combination of these two sections, one about Edom, the other about all nations, shows us why Obadiah was so interested in this tiny southern neighbor of Israel. Obadiah sees Edom's pride and fall as an example, an image of how God will one day confront the pride of all nations and bring about their fall, too. It's hardly coincidental that in Hebrew, the word Edom, or Edom, is spelled with the exact same letters as the word humanity, or in Hebrew, Adam. In Obadiah, Edom's rise and fall is a parable of how God's justice will one day oppose pride and violence among all nations in the day of the Lord. But as in all the prophets, God's judgment is never his final word. Specifically, remember the conclusion of the two books that came right before Obadiah, Joel and Amos. Joel had painted a picture of what will happen after the day of the Lord against all nations. He said that God would perform a new act of salvation in Jerusalem and that all who humbled themselves and called upon him would be delivered. And in the conclusion of Amos, he said that after the day of the Lord has judged Israel's evil, God would raise up the house of David and build a new kingdom for Israel that would include Edom and all the nations called by my name. 
And so the book of Obadiah has been placed right after Joel and then Amos to expand on these very promises about the hope of God's kingdom over all of the nations. And so the book concludes with a very hopeful future. God says he's going to restore his kingdom over the new Jerusalem, that he'll repopulate it with a faithful remnant. And then from there, God's kingdom will expand to include all the territory and nations around Israel. And so this little book contributes to the larger portrait of God's justice and faithfulness that we're seeing in the prophets. The ancient pride and betrayal of the people of Edom becomes an example of the greater human condition, all of the ways that we betray and hurt each other and God's good world. But there's hope, Obadiah says. Edom's downfall points to the day when God will deal with evil in our world, but also bring his healing kingdom of peace over all the nations. And that's what the book of Obadiah is all about. All right, Obadiah in five minutes, literally. So, yeah, easy for him to say, exactly. So, obviously, if you haven't been here, you're playing a little catch-up. We're taking our journey through the minor prophets in the Old Testament, taking one book at a time each week, and that's why we start with a video overview. So we kind of get the bigger picture, and then we kind of dive in more specifically to what's going on in that book. And so today we're in the book of Obadiah, and obviously you've just seen how that's kind of laid out. And what we're going to talk about today is this thing called pride, which is really embedded in deep, deep in each one of us, whether we know it or not. Obviously, looking at the illustration of Edom, Edom's pride and the way they responded to Judah's downfall has a lot to do with the way that we respond. And so what we're going to do to take some time is actually there's four things we'll touch on in this book, which is obviously only 21 verses or so. So we're going to walk through it. But what, what gets highlighted is kind of this progression of what pride does in our life. And it's pretty ugly when you start to see the outflow of this in our life. Because most of us uh, would, would either be in one of two camps. We'll, we'll say, well, yeah, you know, I, I have dealt with pride, or maybe I have a few issues of pride in my life, and then there's the other side of us that says, I don't have any issues of pride, and you're the one we're talking to today, because you do have pride. That's the reality of what, but what pride does to us. It forces us to look at life through a lens that doesn't see clearly. It doesn't see our, we don't see ourselves, we don't see the world around us clearly, because there's this kind of this cloud or this fog over us in the lens that we look through. And so we see people different than reality, we see ourselves different than what's, what's reality, and because of that, we end up living a life that is less than what God purposed. And as we'll see with the illustration of Edom, we go down a road that leads to destruction. So sometimes you and I, if you just for a moment, just take, just take a quick snapshot of maybe that you could think of a time in your life where maybe you, hindsight, you look back and think, yeah, you know what, I wasn't seeing life clearly and I made that decision that was based on pride and boy, I didn't look good. And there's people around you when you come to that moment, you're like, yeah, we knew it, we saw it. We could see clearly, but you couldn't. Uh, one of my cousins and I, we were, he lives up in the Barrier, and we went to uh, Lafayette Reservoir to fish when we were younger. We used to do that quite often when I would visit him. And so we were on, on the, the dock, and we were fishing off the dock there at that reservoir. And so as we're sitting there having a good time, these two brothers show up. And there was nobody else on the dock except us and them. And you could clearly see there was the older brother, and then there was the younger brother. And when they got there, the older brother had taken it upon himself to be the expert fisherman. So you could tell he was going to teach his younger brother how to do what he were going to do. And so they showed up, and they have a tackle box, and they have one fishing pole between the two of them. And so the older brother, you could tell, as we're, and in fact, my cousin and I just were silent. We're just watching all of this unfold. He takes the fishing rod, and he's like going to show his brother how to do this. But, but since they didn't have two rods, he gave his brother just a little drop line, which is basically fishing line on a spool. And you just drop it into the water and hope that you catch something. So the older brother's explaining. It was hilarious. He's explaining all the details of how you fish and how you catch. And, so, and even how you cast and all the details of fishing. And so we're like, wow, this is very informative. 
And so you could tell the little brother was not really interested in what his, his older brother was saying, but his older brother was just convinced he was going to teach his brother, little brother how to fish. And the funniest part was you could tell he really didn't know what he was talking about, even though he thought he did. And it all kind of came to light when he went for his first cast. And he winds up, he's standing on the dock, and he lets it fly, and he's looking out over the water to see where he's cast, only to discover that he did not attach his rod in the middle very strongly. So half of his rod is sailing out into the water. Now, my cousin and I, we had to turn the other way and just laugh hysterically. And uh, well, the funny thing is, as the, he did reel in the other half of his rod and did get to fish. But what's funny is all day long, he caught nothing, and his brother caught fish. That was like the most hilarious part, because the expert didn't catch anything, and the novice was the one that was catching fish without a rod. And I think there's times in our life, and maybe it's even one that we're walking through right now, where we don't see reality the way it is, and we think certain things about ourselves or about other people, but because this lens of pride that we're looking through, we can't see it clearly. So maybe this morning is part of that God saying, listen, there's a lens I want to pull away from your eyes. There's this cloud that I need to clear from your vision so you can see life clearly, and that issue is pride. So as I mentioned, we're going to touch on a number of the verses, and this, this is, again, reflecting on Edom's pride and what it produced in them and how that affects what it produces in us. So look at verses 10 and 11 in Obadiah, because the first thing that, that pride does in us, as it did in Edom, is it causes indifference to the sufferings of others. So verse 10 and 11, it says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, talking to Edom, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So what is the prophet saying? What is God saying to Edom? Saying, listen, when your close relative... Judah was being attacked and and overrun and occupied and controlled and destroyed, you were indifferent to their pain. You stood back and you did absolutely nothing on their behalf. Now you can see from the video too, they were fully aware, even the positioning geographically, they knew what was happening in Judah, they knew what was happening to Israel, but they just stood back and did nothing. And I think sometimes either knowingly or unknowingly, that's our response to the sufferings of people around us. It becomes this indifference in us that either comes from ignorance that we don't know or becomes something about it's not my problem because our pride kind of confuses us and doesn't let us see things clearly. It's just like the famous quote from Edmund Burke that says, the only thing necessary for triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So we stand by. Now, most of us don't feel that 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 would be our lives. Usually when something not right is happening, we have this reaction to either speak out of the injustice going on around us or feel compassion. But maybe there's things that you and I don't even see that are going on that we don't even know about that have caused us to not see the reality of the world because we're indifferent to it. We were here, if you were here last week, we talked about, uh, in the book of Amos, this, this calamity called comfort, where we, we live in a bubble of comfort, and we don't see the brokenness around us, and we don't see what's happening in the world, and we kind of go to sleep. Pride does the same thing to us. It doesn't allow us to value or see the experiences of other people, because pride causes us to be kind of self-focused on ourselves, on our lives. One of the benefits that I've had in my life is I've had a chance to travel. When you get outside the U.S. and you start to see the world around you, you start to have a different concept of what the world is experiencing than what we get through our televisions or our phones or through the internet. You start to see the reality of brokenness around you that maybe when you were in this bubble called the United States, you don't see it. 
And I remember the, the first time that really hit me where I was like confronted with something that I had no idea was going on in the world, but all the while it's happening while I'm living in this sense of indifference and comfort in my own little world. Back when we were up in Oregon, there were some students that came from George Fox that I got to know a little bit, and they, they had talked about this organization called Invisible Children, and I didn't know what that was at the time. It was just starting out, and it was a, a group of filmmakers who had basically in, in kind of had to take a, a detour in their process of where they were in Africa, and they ended up in Uganda, in northern Uganda, and discovered what some of the world had known, but most of the world was indifferent to, which is that for years there was a civil war going on in the northern part of Uganda, and what was happening is that families were being devastated as the Lord's Resistance Army would come into villages and would kill parents and then take their children and then try to take them and make them into ch- children's soldiers. And this was going on for years. And so the invisible children tried to tell this narrative to the world. And so that it was something that began to kind of increase in, in people knowing about it. And then a couple of years later, we ended up taking a trip with a friend who I've become friends with who was from Uganda with a couple different organizations And when we were traveling in the northern part of Uganda, what's interesting, when you travel from village to village, every village has a story. And the stories are horrific. Of what you, you, you have family members who are telling what just happened a decade ago or five years ago, what happened to them or what happened to their relatives. And it's just unbelievable as you're listening to this. And, and so as we, we came to, we were in the northern part in the Padere district, and as we went from village to village, there was one that we came to, and we came to what we would just say is an intersection. There's just a couple little, like, like huts around it and maybe a couple of buildings, but really not, we wouldn't call it a town or a village, but that was their village. And on the side or in that corner, there was a, a monument that had been put up. In fact, you can put it up on the screen. You can take a look. This is the monument that we saw. And so when we got there, when, when, we were, you, when you travel in northern Uganda and Americans come and the white folks come, people kind of come out and they're wanting to know what's going on. There's, so there's like 50 or 60 people around this monument and they're kind of, what are you guys doing here? And so, so as we're listening to the story of why this monument's there, it just, it just hits you. This is the reality of what the world lives in. So there's 28 names on that monument, and those 28 names are 28 people who lost their lives at the hands of the Lord's Resistance Army a number of years prior. But it wasn't that their lives were just taken. It was the way that their lives that were taken. It was so horrific. So the whole concept of the Lord's Resistance Army was to use intimidation and brutality to dominate people, to scare them into submission. And so they tell the story that, that at, at one, and there was at nighttime, the Lord's Resistance Army came into that village and started doing what they normally do, which was taking the lives of parents and then t- kidnapping children. But because they wanted to make a statement, they took a, the, more than just these 28, but they took the lives of these 28 people. And if that wasn't enough, then what they did is on the road where I'm standing, where that picture is taken, they put up about a dozen pots with flames underneath them and they began to boil water. And then they took those 28 people that they had taken their lives and they dismembered them and they put them in the pots and they cooked them. And then they forced the people who lived in that village to eat them. Now you're thinking, why would you tell that story on a Sunday morning? That's horrific. Because when I'm standing there at that monument listening to that, I'm thinking to myself, this is what's happening in the world around me. While I'm back on the other side of the world, protected from this, this is what's happening. And after that trip, and to this day, I don't look at the news like the way I used to. When there's this little 30-second or even 5-second blip of what something's happening in the world, which cycles out in our 24-hour news cycle, I dial into that thing because I think that's somebody's reality. 
That isn't just something that gets reported on the news and then I go on and drinking my coffee. I realize there's people around the world and because of the blindness that in my own life and even the, the culture that I live in, I don't see that I have to think there are people around the world that live like this. And I can't li- allow sometimes the pride of where I was born somehow make me indifferent to the brokenness of the world around me. So if we understand that, we know that that's the first kind of stage of pride, that we're, we're indifferent. Now we'll move on because you're either crying or you're mad at me for sharing that on Sunday morning. Second thing, look at verse 12. Pride not only causes indifference, it takes joy in the misfortunes of others. So again, this is Edom's experience. This is what happened when pride had taken root in their life. It says in verse 12, But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. So Edom did what? Not only was it that they did nothing, they were just aloof is what the scripture says, but they actually took joy in watching their relatives suffer. Because of the, the animosity between these two families and these relatives, they actually took joy in this. They, they watched this thinking, finally, finally, because if you go back to, remember Jacob and Esau, two, two nations within one womb that were battling, and now somehow, because Jacob had always been the chosen, now Edom's thinking, now it's payback time. And so they watch this, and, they, and it ta- they take joy. Now, this can be very brutal and can be obviously horrific that they would take joy in the loss of life of somebody else. But, but you and I, in very small ways, we have a challenge with this. And I know for me, honestly, because on, uh, not on all subjects that I preach on, but I tell you, on pride, I am an expert on the subject. That's why I come to you today as a specialist in pride, because it's been part of my life. But I know in, inside of me, it, it comes up quickly. And I'm like, I have to make sure that I'm, I'm looking at reality clearly before that lens gets put over. Anybody been to Costco lately? <clears throat> Costco is the place you go if you want to see the worst of humanity, okay? At least in our context. No offense if you work there. But just, just think about this for a moment. So you take everything that people want, you put it in bulk, and you, give it, you sell it for a really good price, and you put it in one building. That is like the epitome of selfishness, right? So you walk in, and it's all about you. You don't see anybody else around you, right? That's why you've ever gotten near, near the tasting areas. It is competitive. I mean, people are rude. It's like they'll grab the last little, you know, bacon bite or whatever it is, and like there's this mass argument. They even was in the news like last year. Guy was like going to fight for stupid food that was free. It was just crazy. So that's the context of Costco. So you know it, right? You've got, you've got the picture. So Kim and I were there about a week and a half ago or so. And we usually try to avoid the weekend at Costco because that's even like a whole other side of crazy that we don't want to be a part of. But so we're, it's like a Tuesday night. I don't know. I think it was. And so we, we got a few items, like maybe four or five items in our cart, which, you know, was, is really like small. I wish they had like the express line at Costco. But so we're, we're, you get, if you know, the, the, you know, you go through the whole thing and you're coming out that center aisle and then boom, you hit the registers. And so when you come out there, you're scoping out which one has the shortest line and who has the least amount in their basket. You know what I'm talking about? So we kind of scan out and there's this one register that there's one person in line and they only had a few items like on the belt. And we're like, oh, cool. So we start going that direction. And then out of the corner of my right eye, I see this woman. And she just moves really quick right past us. And as she's going by, I notice her. And it doesn't, I notice that I don't see a cart. I don't see anything in her hand. So, and she kind of steps right in front of us. I'm, at first, I'm a little offended. Like, okay, you only have one item. I probably would have let you go by anyway. And that would have been fine. And so she gets up there. And so I kind of pull up behind her. And then, like five seconds later, here comes her husband from the left. And he has a cart with like 500 items in it. And he pulls right in front of us. And Kim and I just looked at each other like, are you serious? So we're like, I'm not going to wait for this. It's Tuesday night. This is supposed to be you know, light night at Costco. 
So we switch lines, and I'm just going to be honest with you. We switch lines, and the whole time we're at regi- three registers over, I'm just looking at him. <laughs> I'm not like giving him a bad stare or a bad look. I'm just looking at him. In my mind, I'm thinking, I have to beat them out of the store. <laughs> Even though they have 500 items and we have five, and I know it's a good chance, but I'm just watching. I'm like, I'm like you know, you're like tracking. Because you know when you get out of the register, how does it work at Costco? You all end up in one line, right? You have to hand over your receipt before you go out the door. And I'm thinking, they better not beat me to the receipt guy at the door. (laughs) So we get through, and I'm watching this. And as I watch them, we beat them all the way out the door. (laughs) Yeah, good for you. (laughs) What is that? You're like, you won! That's what it is. No, it's not. It's the pride inside of me that got offended that somebody cut in front of me that wanted them to experience dis or misfortune, wanted to take joy in the fact that I could get out of there before they could. Now, I know that's, we laugh at it, and that's small, but that's, that on a much grander scale is what Edom was, was doing with Judah. And that's what happens when pride becomes a part of our life. It starts with being offended in line at Costco, and then before you know it, it becomes something where you get out on the road and you actually start taking action towards people because of your offense, because of your pride, which we will, after we get through these four things, we'll talk about kind of peeling the layer back and looking at the inside of pride in our hearts. Then the, the third thing, the third thing that pride does is that it actually takes advantage in the misfortunes of others. Not only just takes joy, but takes advantage. Verse 13, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. The charge against Edom is not only did they become indifferent and take joy, but then they actually took advantage, which means they actually took from Judah or at least there's this assumption that they're stealing from Judah in the midst of their misfortune. That's the whole concept of looting, is when somebody cannot defend themselves. That's like when a fire breaks out or, or something happens where houses are unattended. That's one of the things that law enforcement has to deal with. Someone's going to loot that house because no one's there to defend it. So that's what's happening is that Edom is looking at this as an advantage that they have over Judah to say, now we can take advantage of their riches. Now we can actually take for them because they can't defend themselves. You can see the progression of pride. This gets pretty horrific. That it's not enough to, to go after somebody in their strength, but you go after somebody in the, their weakest moment and take advantage of that. It's the difference between, if you've watched, like, especially on like, the highest competitive level, the difference between soccer and basketball. So globally, soccer is a much more actually accepted sport and more, more popular sport than basketball. But it's interesting, in fact, in America, I know everybody goes crazy for AYSO, but then we all struggle when, when we, it's like all the best soccer players live in Europe or South America, right? But there's this concept of soccer I think that sometimes we don't get. Uh, one of them is we, we like really high-scoring games. And so when, it, when a soccer game's one, one, one to nothing, an international fan will say, that was like an awesome game. And the rest of us are like, that was boring. There was one goal the whole time. But there's this interesting thing about soccer that's different than basketball. And that is that there's, there's these unwritten rules about soccer. And one of those is, if you've watched this, now if you, if you know soccer, you know that injuries can be strategic. That means that sometimes when somebody like blows on one soccer player and they fall over like grabbing their knee, it's all a show to try to get the referee to, to call a penalty or, or, or a yellow card. But the reality is, is when someone gets injured in soccer and they go down and it's genuine and the players on the field know the difference between a real injury and a fake injury. So a guy goes down, he's grabbing his knee or he's grabbing his ankle and you can tell this is legit, he's really hurt. When the other team gets the ball, you know what they do? They kick the ball out of bounds. You think, wait a second. You have a one-man advantage. That guy's down on the field. Take the ball down the other way, score your one goal for the game, and win, right? That would be the typical, I think, in our mindset. 
but they kick the ball out of bounds. Why? Because there's some kind of sportsmanship underneath there, that unwritten rule that says we don't take advantage of the other team when they're down. When their player is down, we don't take that for advantage. Now, basketball on the other end, I know much better because I played it. If a guy goes down on one end of the court, let's say he goes up to get a rebound and he twists his knee and he goes down, as long as he's not in the middle of the play, he stays on the ground. He does. And the other team goes down the court with a five to four advantage. And what happens is the ball, the, 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 the referee will blow the whistle if the ball goes out of bounds or if the other team scores or if the ball gets shot and missed at that end. And then as they're coming back, he's still laying on the floor. Out of mercy, the referee will finally blow the whistle so he doesn't get trampled by the, the rest of the players. That's the typical response. You're like, are you kidding me? We have an advantage? Let's take advantage. Whereas what this is saying is that Edom was doing that to Judah, but that's a sign of their own pride. That they would actually use this situation. They would use that. In fact, on a much grander scale, what does that look like? When we have that skewed view ourselves, we are indifferent to the sufferings of others and then actually take advantage of them. Again, this gets repeated in our world all the time. It's one of the reasons we built a really strong partnership with Connect2 and Haiti. That's why we send two teams a year and we support them financially. Because as Greg Barshaw has been working with Pastor Police there, the next stage of what they're going through, in fact, our last team was working on this particular compound, which is an orphanage that is not just for any orphans, not that obviously being an orphan is bad enough as it is, but a specific kind of orphan that, that is becoming more prominent in Haiti. After the earthquake, loss of life, massive loss of life, instant orphans throughout Haiti. There was bad enough before, but now you have a massive loss of life. You've got parents who lose their life. So now you have kids literally living on the street with nobody to take care of them. And they don't have a government like we do that sometimes can come in and help. They have nothing. They have no infrastructure like that. So they're left for themselves. So what happens is people inside of Haiti and people outside of Haiti who came in took advantage of kids and realized these are vulnerable children. They have no one to advocate for themselves. So what happened is now in Haiti... Greg Barsha said there's estimated 300,000 child slaves, either in the sex trade or in the labor trade, basically, is what happens, because they have nothing. And so somebody looks at their misfortune and saying, I need to have compassion for them, I need to help them. They say, this is my opportunity to make money. But the beautiful thing is that's what's going on with Connect2. They have five of these in the works, that these orphanages will take in kids coming out of this being trafficked for whatever it is they're being used for into a home where they get parented, they get loved, they learn a trade, and they actually become, can become a human being again. But see, that's the outcome. That's the ultimate outcome of what pride does in us. And then there's a fourth thing. The fourth thing is in verse 14, that pride actually goes to the level of participating in the misfortunes of others. Verse 14, do, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So what was actually going on? This is crazy. So it's not enough to just stand back and watch or to take joy or actually take advantage of. But what was happening is Edom was watching this stream of refugees come out of Judah, running for their lives. And you would think at that point, something in them would say, listen, come on, these are my relatives. We should do something for them. But actually what they were doing is they're actually enslaving them or killing them or capturing them and then taking them back so that they could be incarcerated. So they're actually in this, like now actively participating in the overthrow of Judah and what's going on there because their pride so burned within them that they wanted somehow in their own mind this concept of justice. Now, as I've been reading through this this week, I'm making a pretty safe assumption 
But I thought, when I speak on this Sunday, I don't think there's going to be anybody in the room who's going to wait patiently for refugees to come and then exploit them and murder them in our church. I hope I'm true. I hope this is the truth, okay? I don't think we have that problem. But I think we have another problem, and I know it's a problem that I've had in my life, and that is because of pride, we don't use weapons. We don't use physical weapons to inflict harm on people, but we we do use our words to inflict harm on each other. And sometimes those can be more hurtful over the long term in the lives of people when we use them. And they're a direct result of pride in our lives. See, we'll talk about it in a moment because really the core of pride isn't that you feel really good about yourself and that you are better. It's that you feel really bad about yourself so you overcompensate out of your insecurity. That's what the core of pride does in us. That's what it is. And when you feel that sense of inadequacy and you, you take advantage of those moments where you can put somebody down to make yourself feel like you're lifted up, When I got out of Bible college and I first got into ministry, I had a whole lot of knowledge and very little experience. That is a dangerous scenario. Because when you have lots of knowledge and very little experience, you think you know everything. But you haven't lived enough to know that you know nothing. Those of you who have a little gray hair know what I'm talking about, right? You learn humility over time because you don't know what you don't know until life teaches it to you. And when I first got out of Bible college, I remember when I got into ministry, I was highly critical of people who had gone before me because I came out of Bible college thinking, I know all the answers. I can go pastor a church. I can solve world hunger. I can do everything. I can, I can make the world a better place because I have a Bible college education. I don't see, I didn't say that, but that's kind of the thinking that you have. And so when you start looking at other people, you start looking at them like they don't know what they're doing. And I remember there was a group of people that I would, kind of a circle I was in, and that was kind of the vibe. We would get together and we would just cap on other people. We would talk about other churches and about other leaders and about how they missed it. And yeah, his church is 10,000, but he has no idea what he's doing, right? And yeah, they're reaching the poor, but they could do it better. Or, you know, all these different things you start saying or, and whatever it is, and it's because there's this arrogance in you. And I remember what happened as a result of that, that I lived in that for years until one of the things that really helped me is I went out and planted a church and then really realized I do not know what I'm doing. And then in comes this flood of humility that says you need to be quiet and listen. Then the outflow of that for me was I went through a season of time, and Kim can tell you this, where I was running in purpose, running into leaders that I had capped on and gossiped about for years and having to ask them to forgive me. Because as God began to humble me, I began to realize, first of all, what you're doing is wrong because you're gossiping. And secondly, you lack the humility to know you can learn from these people that you're critiquing. And I remember going back to, and in fact, Dennis, and East, Dennis Easter, who's our district supervisor, he's my boss. Uh, he's one of those, I've known Dennis forever, but I've had multiple times where I go back and two things, either I asked Dennis for forgiveness for saying something bad about him, and then also coming back and saying, you were right, I didn't want you to be right, but you were right. When I would watch Dennis do things, I'd go, why is he doing that? I could do it better only to find out there's a reason that he did that because he had enough, he'd had enough experience in his life to learn from that, to do things a certain way. And I think sometimes if you and I aren't careful, our pride comes out in the way that we talk about other people, that we put them down because it makes us feel better about ourselves for about 30 seconds until it happens again and again and again. So the ultimate outflow of Edom, obviously, is that that leads to their own demise and their own destruction. But this is, as it said, it's a great analogy for us to say, okay, this is Edom's journey, but I don't want to go down that road. And this is, again, the beauty of the minor prophets as we see the cycle of what happens is that, that in, if you look at verse 15, a couple of things I want to highlight, and then we'll kind of dive into pride a little bit, and then we'll, we'll go into communion. But understanding that one of the things that is very freeing is verse 15 
It says this, for the Lord or the for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. And as you have as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Why is that such a freeing verse? Because that means you and I don't have to be God. That means we don't have to exact justice on people. That means that we don't have to worry about if life is fair. That means that our pride that says we want to stand up for ourselves and we want to make sure that we aren't wrong, that nobody steps on us, that we're going to, we don't have to do that because ultimately God will take care of that. But then in verse 21, the last verse as we look at, the reminder is that in the end, God will restore all things. God will deal with evil once and for all. God will be God and then he'll restore all things. In verse 21, it says, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount uh, Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's, that God again will establish himself. But let's, before we head into communion, I just wanted to, to, to get, because again, I, I know my own experience and my journey and learning from some difficult things in life. There are a lot of crazy things that pride causes us to do. Things that we wouldn't imagine that we would live in, but we do because we live with this lens of pride over our eyes and over our life. And maybe you can find yourself in one or two of these things, but I just want to touch just real briefly on what, our, what we tend to do with our own pride. Some of us are here today, and, and again, I'm not, gonna point, I'm not pointing fingers. I don't have this insight into anybody's life, but there's a good chance in the room right now, some of us are wearing our pride. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Is that you, deep down inside, know and feel inadequate, but you don't want people to know that. You know deep down inside you're broken and there's issues in your life, but you don't want people to know that. So you wear your pride, and your pride becomes a shield, it becomes a barrier, it becomes a false reality to try to convince people of something that you want them to think is true about your life, but inside you know it's the exact opposite. So you wear your pride out of fear and insecurity that's inside of you. This morning as we were preparing for, for the services, we and everyone's welcome, between 8.15 and 8.30 every morning, uh, every Sunday morning, all of those who are involved with service pray together for about 15 minutes. We listen to what God's saying, and then we share that with each other. As we, just as we go into the service, God, what do you want to highlight? And as I was praying, just as soon as I closed my eyes to pray, the Lord just put a picture into my, to my, my view, and immediately I knew what it was. And it was this picture of people walking into our building today, and they all had on masks, and they had these big cloaks or robes around them. And I immediately, as soon as, it's like as soon as the picture came, I knew what God was saying. And, then, and I know that it was true of my life that there will be people who walk into our building this morning and they're wearing a mask to cover their face and a cloak to cover their brokenness and their sin. And as I looked closer into the picture, as my eyes were closed, I could see that the mask that people were wearing wasn't a mask that allowed you to have any facial expression. Because the purpose of the mask was to really hide what you were really feeling and what, who you really are. So it was just kind of this blank stare. And then that cloak was to cover everything else that you didn't want anybody else to see. And when I saw that, I thought, that's got to be some of the reality of what we live in. Some of us are not really honest about who we are, and we let our pride compensate for our lack. And because of that, we never get close to people. We pretend we are, but we never are vulnerable. We're never honest. Why? Because we may actually have to pull the mask off and drop the cloak, and then people really see who we are. So some have come in, we were wearing our pride today, and, and God's saying, listen, it's time to strip that away. Second thing is some of us are just blinded by our pride, that we just don't even see it. And this is a more difficult one, because God is not in the business of embarrassing us, but he will expose us. He will pull back the layer to say, listen, you have to take a look. It's what, what when, when Nathan came to David and told him, this, told him the story about the rich man and the poor man and the sheep, he was telling him a story because David needed to be exposed, not embarrassed, but exposed of his sin with Bathsheba. And so God does that for today. And the only way that you and I ever become unblind or we can see is when God exposes that. And then our, the light comes on and we see it. Sometimes, many times, that comes through other people. 
people who see what you can't see. And that's why it's so important to ask other people that you trust and you're close to, what do you see that's true about my life? What am I not seeing that I need to be aware of? Or maybe the third, the third category is where you're falling in, then I'll take a little time on this, is that we, we're dealing with pride because our pride is injured. What I mean by that is that we have pride and we try to have pride in ourselves. And this is not the kind of pride where we say, hey, take pride in your hard work. That's different. We're talking about an arrogance and an insecurity that kind of accompanies our personalities. But, but actually being injured means that I live in this tension of constantly feeling a sense of guilt about myself while being offended all the time. That's, that's the root of, of insecurity and pride is because my pride is a real thin layer on the outside and it can be penetrated by hurtful words or by things that people do. And because of that, I live in this tension of, of feeling injured all the time. That's a pride issue. And that's why sometimes we don't want to get close to people because we have an injured pride. And in all of that, there's this reality that God has designed us not to live in that, but we do. And that's, in fact, that's what, what I want to talk about for a few months. We're going to go to communion. In fact, I'm going to ask the worship team to come and join me if they would as we prepare for communion. But, but I want us to, to grasp what I believe God really wants us to hear about pride. Not to go down the road of what Edom went down, but, but to really understand what God is getting at. So as I was praying earlier this morning as well, not only did God highlight this, the mask and the cloak that we wear or we cover ourselves with, but that even in our own brokenness, in our own injury in life or perceived injury, we struggle with truly being transparent and allowing God to let us come into the light so we can experience healing. God drew me to the story in the, in the Gospels of the woman who had for years and years and years had a disease that caused her to bleed. And because of that, she had gone to doctor after doctor. She had tried everything she could. She had been taken advantage of, and there was no answer for her. She continued to live in that. Now, for us today, that's, that can be an, is an issue for women, but for her in her day, it not only was a physical issue, it was an issue in society. Because in that day and age, if blood was present, especially for a woman, she was considered to be unclean by the law. So when she would step into public, and because this had been going on for years and years and years, even if she was physically able to hide her bleeding, everybody in the community knew who she was. And so they wouldn't want to be near her. They wouldn't want to associate with her. Why? Because they knew she's unclean. She has this issue in her. And as you, if you know the story, so she's been struggling with this for years, but she knows that Jesus is now in her town. So she knows when she steps in public, she's going to be, everyone's going to look at her and know who she is. But she's thinking, this is my opportunity. If I can just get to Jesus, and if you know the story, it's great. She's thinking, he doesn't have to pray for me. He doesn't have to lay hands on me. He doesn't have to do anything. If I could just touch his clothes, I have the faith to believe he actually could heal me. And so she does. She gets in the middle of the crowd, and she pushes her way to Jesus. And this is in the middle of a mob. So Jesus is surrounded, and he's being touched or grabbed by lots of people. And then she touches his clothes. And he freezes and he stops, which if you know the story, he turns to his disciples. He says, someone touched me. And they're like, really, Jesus? Everyone's touching you. And he said, no, no, their power came out of me. I know something just happened. And this is where the story gets real for her. Because in her mind, she's thinking, if I can just sneak in, I can touch his clothes, then I can go away with my healing and quiet. She had that faith, but Jesus stopped. And then she has to step out of the shadows. And she has to step forward because Jesus says, who touched me? And she says, I touched you. And so now everybody sees her. She knows she's out there, but then she's healed. 
What was that in her that would keep her from wanting to step boldly to Jesus for everybody to see so she could be healed? What was that? That was her own sense of insecurity. Because she knew inside of her, if people, if I have to expose myself, I can't bear the embarrassment, so I cover it over. For her, it would have been covering it over with lots of layers of clothing. For us, we cover ourselves with overcompensating for our lives, making ourselves feel superior to other people, making it look like we're something that we're not. And we live in that until God comes along and says, no. No, that leads to destruction. That's why God inspired Obadiah to say the words that he said that were written, recorded in Scripture for us to know, don't go down that road. So let me close with this. As we prepare for communion, there are some, some this important picture that, that we need to see as we receive these elements. Because in a moment, as we go back into worship, you, you'll be able to go when you feel led to, to the different stations. There's four of them around the room to receive the elements, which is the bread and the cup. These are symbols that remind us that Jesus died on the cross for our sin and our brokenness. But there's a bigger framework that's so important to understand about what we're about to do. When you read through the New Testament, particularly Paul's writings, Paul uses a lot of legal terms to describe the way that we encounter God and the way that we interact with God. And so if you look at the theology of the New Testament, one of the things that you see is that there's this courtroom theology. And that is, as sinners, we are guilty. There's no way around it. We have sinned. We have broken the law, and therefore there is judgment that we deserve. And that judgment for our sin ultimately is death. That's, that's the legal reality of what our sin does. But the picture of the courtroom that God paints in the New Testament for us is when we come into that courtroom, we, be, we would be sitting at the defendant's table, and then God, who's the judge and the jury, who's going to exact the judgment upon us, is sitting there on the bench. And then in some scenarios, you would have over at the prosecutor's table, you'd have the enemy, the Satan, who is, who's accusing us of all the wrongdoing in our life. And as that unfolds and the list of all of our sins is read, and, and there's no way we're getting out of this. In fact, we're more guilt, so guilty, there's nothing that can, we can get out of. There's DNA evidence, there's video evidence, there's all kinds. I mean, we are guilty. But then in the courtroom in the New Testament, through the cross, Jesus walks into the courtroom and he looks at the Father and he says, they are guilty, but I'm going to take their punishment on myself even though I'm perfect, even though I haven't sinned because I love them so much that I would take that on myself for them. And in that moment, all of our sin for all time is taken on Jesus so that we walk out of that courtroom not just not guilty, but innocent. Because all the sin that was resident in us is now placed on Jesus and now we stand innocent before God. Why is that so important when it comes to pride? Because I know in my life, and I've seen this in the lives of so many people, every morning we wake up and we put ourselves in the courtroom. Because the courtroom to us is one of two things. The courtroom is, today I have to be good enough for God. So I have to do the right thing and I have to make sure that I don't mess up today because I'm standing before God, I'm going to be judged. And because of that, I know that I can't mess up today. So I put myself in the courtroom and when I put myself in the courtroom, pride has to be present. Why? Because I know I'm a broken person and I don't want anybody to see I'm a broken person. Or we go to the other extreme. The other extreme is, yeah, we know that we're broken and we're obvious about that brokenness, but we don't realize the only way out of that brokenness is that you have to surrender it over to Jesus. So you may be vulnerable about your sin, and you may be open about it, but you can't hang on to it. You have to give it to him. 
But here's the reality. This is the beautiful thing about the courtroom is that God has made a verdict for you and I once and for all and that verdict doesn't change. And that's this. You can never do anything that will make God love you more or love you less because God is love and God chooses to love. Because someone said, no, 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 wait a second. We have to, we have to be good people. And no, 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 no. You are a good person as a byproduct of the cross and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You are not a good person for God to, to earn God's favor. And here's the reality. In fact, there's a great book. If you haven't read it, I've given it to a number of people in our church. It's written by Tim Keller, and it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Small, tiny little book. I read it twice a year to remind myself of my pride and my insecurity. Because this is what Tim Keller writes of this courtroom and what the truth is that we have to live in. He says this. He says, like Paul, we can say, I don't care what you think. I don't even care what I think. I only care about what the Lord thinks. And he has said, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Live out of that. Do we get that? So when you go through your issue of pride and you don't want people to know the real you because of your insecurity and you don't want them to know who you are because you're afraid they're going to reject them, it doesn't matter what they think. And when you go through the self-doubts and the questioning within yourself, am I good enough for God, or you get down on yourself because of your brokenness, God says to you, it doesn't matter what you think of yourself. All that matters is what God thinks. He's already made that statement. God has chosen, not because you're good enough, but because he loves you, to accept you. When you say yes to Jesus, he accepts you. That's a verdict that's set in stone. That's God. And if we live in that, that means when you get up tomorrow morning, it doesn't really matter what your boss thinks of you. You live out your life trying to be the best person you can be, but you don't do it to justify yourself. It doesn't really matter what you think about your abilities, whether you think you have a lot or you have little, because God's already determined how he feels about you. And if you and I are to live in that reality, the reason we can live in that reality is because what we're about to do, we're about to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, which is the verdict on our behalf, which God says, Jesus took your guilt, now you're innocent. You're innocent before me. You are acceptable before me. And that doesn't change doesn't change according to your season of life. It doesn't change according to your emotions because God said it, and that's the truth. Would you close your eyes as we prepare in a moment to receive communion? Jesus, thank you for stepping into the courtroom. And as we receive these elements in this next moment, I pray for each one of us that we would hear your verdict loud and clear that says, because you took on our guilt on the cross, you have determined before God that we are now innocent. And because of that, we don't have to live in the courtroom. And we don't have to live under the weight of others' expectations or the weight of our own expectations and live in a false reality of pride, but we can live free before you, that we are right before you because, Jesus, what you did for us before the Father allows us to experience that. And then we can live our lives out, not trying to earn your favor by being good, but becoming good from the inside out because we're being transformed by your spirit through your love and your mercy and your grace. So Jesus, would you seal these things as we receive these elements? Remind us that you have established our innocence in this courtroom so that we can be free from the brokenness in us, we can be free from pride, and we never have to fear going down the road that Edom went down, but we can look forward to the restoration of all things, Jesus, as you establish your kingdom in our lives. Thank you.